Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. A beginning is a very delicate time. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another edition of the Remnant Podcast. To the, this week's or this episode is brought to you by Stamps.com and Conversations with Bill Crystal. Uh, we'll talk more about those in a little bit. Uh, but let's get straight to our guest today, who is Tyler Cowan, the Holbert L. Harris Professor at George Mason University and director of the Mercatus Center. He's also the author of The Complacent Class, The Great Stagnation, and his latest book, which he has been working on for quite a while, is called Stubborn Attachments. We'll get right to the conversation, and then we're going to have a bit of a conversation, further conversation at the end between uh, Jack and I, where we will address various and sundry issues. But now it's uh, Professor Cowan. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to The Remnant. Thank you for having me. So you didn't hear me do it, but I just did a very lavish introduction of you that I promise you'll have no objection to. Great. Um, you are the author of many books. I listed some of them, but your newest one is Stubborn Attachments. Why don't you just do what I'm going to ask you the greatest question you can ever ask an author on a book tour. What's your book about? Stubborn Attachments is my attempt to defend a free society and give it foundations in reason and logic. The book is a cross of economics and philosophy. It speaks out in favor of economic growth and also capitalism. It's small c conservative in the sense that it emphasizes sustainability. Uh, it alienates left-wingers by attacking the idea of pursuing equality for its own sake. And I think it somewhat alienates right-wingers by being concerned about sustainability of the environment. It's a short book, but I've been working on it actually for 20 years on and off. And now it's out with Sprite Press. Um, so let's start sort of towards the beginning. One of your assertions at the very front of the book is that there are such things as right and wrong, that there are correct answers to questions about what is right and wrong. Why, first of all, why did you expand on that a little bit? And second of all, why did you feel it was necessary to start from that proposition? A lot of what is written on ethics has a relativistic flavor. I just state from the outset, that's not my approach. I don't argue for it. I would say I ask the fundamental question, when can we ever say that one society or one state of affairs is definitely objectively better than another? And the answer I arrive at is that if one society is much wealthier than another, then virtually all of the lives in that wealthier society are likely to be better, at least in expected value terms. There will be more creativity. Jobs will be more comfortable. People will live longer. Uh, there'll be less infant mortality. 
people will just have more pleasures from life. So I then asked the question, well, what's the recipe that would get us to a state of affairs where society can be much wealthier over time? And that brings us back to economic growth as the fundamental good thing we can do for society. So um, I should just you know, declare up front, I really enjoyed, I haven't finished it yet. I wish, the, I wish your book had come out. I wish you'd spent 19 years working on it so I could have used more of it for my own book. And I, I generally agree with where you're coming from on this, but just to push back a little bit, aren't you getting the, co- the correlation and causation, or couldn't one claim that you're getting the cor- correlation and causation backwards? Couldn't you make the case that the better society that gets rich, but that's not what makes it the better society. It is the, the customs, the values, the institutional arrangements, the principles that it is organized around that make it get rich. It's not that because it's rich, it has those values. Or am I just being unfair to the way you, you're stating it? No, I strongly agree. So I think something like good institutions and strong ethics and norms make a society wealthy. And that's ultimately the defense for focusing on, say, good institutions and strong ethics and norms. That's our reason for thinking those are objectively better. But someone might say, look, the Soviet Union in the in the early 1930s was was richer than it was in 1900, but it wasn't arguably better, right? I mean, you can get, at least get short-term boosts of economic growth and productivity from doing evil things. The point being is that the, the important part is being the good society, and good societies will, over time, become rich societies, not that rich societies are good. Or am I... I agree. Two points on the Soviet Union. First, my book stresses the notion of sustainable economic growth, which the Soviets most definitely did not have. But there's also a part of my book where I argue for absolute human rights. There are some things you simply should not do, such such as killing large numbers of innocent people, even if they'll boost growth. Now, I don't think that's how the Soviets boosted their own growth. I think a lot of it was just migration into cities. But you can think of the two stubborn attachments I argue for in my book. The first one is economic growth, and the second is absolute respect for human rights. And the key part of the argument is to argue like those are are really the only two things we should pursue at the social level. So, right. So it seems to me that at the social level is a really important caveat, right? Because when I hear you describe all of this, it resonates with me. But there is a tendency in human nature and in political discourse to assume that what one advocates for the larger society, for the sort of Hayekian macrocosm, is what one is advocating for the individual. And you weren't, you're not arguing that the, the, the purpose of the individual is to get richer, right? You're just saying that the role for policymakers and the larger society is to protect human rights or individual rights. And, and and to grow the pie. But that's not how I should look towards my own family enterprise, is it? Well, I do try to bridge the gap between the social recommendation and what individuals should do. I don't think it can be bridged entirely. But the notion that individuals should do that which will most boost societal growth, to me, is ethically plausible. When you think through the logic of decentralized knowledge and comparative advantage and how markets work, what is typically called common sense morality, you know, have a family, save a lot of money, be responsible, be nice to your friends. It turns out that, again, in expected value terms, that's pretty close to what does maximize economic growth. 
So this recommendation of the effective altruists, like, oh, the doctor's obliged to go and spend his whole life just serving the poorest of people, uh, I don't agree with that. I think common sense morality comes pretty close to getting us toward this goal. So there's not that much of a conflict between the big social perspective and the individual perspective. But a but let's take someone who does go spend their lives working and, and helping the poor. You know, Mother Teresa did not have, I'm not trying to disparage her, but she did not have common sense morality. She had a sort of extreme form of altruism. You wouldn't argue that by, by the standard of your philosophy that therefore she had a wasted life, would you? Well, I think a lot of Mother Teresa's goal was to convert souls rather than to be altruistic in the uh, narrower sense. I would put it this way. I think there's a very strong argument that we should all be more altruistic at the margin. But the net result that all we, run it, all we do is run around being altruistic, there's then not a social surplus left to redistribute. So if someone wants to help the world, I would say, well, start by earning a lot of money. Yes, of course, over time, give most of it away. But first, value needs to be produced. So I'm very much stressing the production side as a prerequisite for better distribution. Okay, I, I want to come back to some of that in a little bit, but I, I want to get more of your thesis out first. The role of discounting plays in me a big part in your argument, including the idea of discounting or not discounting future human lives. Can you just sort of talk the listeners through that a little bit? I make a moral argument that we should not discount human happiness or human utility or human lives simply because they're further away in time. So the more distant future is just as real or just as significant as the present in moral terms. Uh, if you think about ourselves today, if Cleopatra had discounted our well-being at 1% or 3% and decided to you know, eat into all of the capital stock of her society, thereby causing the world to perish, uh, that to me is a moral crime. So when you think of the more distant future as having equal value, the recommendation you are led to is a pretty simple economic one, more or less from Adam Smith, maximize the rate of sustainable economic growth. That's the implication of zero discounting. And so how does that play into issues? Uh, I got into some uh, heated exchanges in the last few days about making essentially this argument or a related argument about climate change, where I think that there are there are some very pressing things that the that need to be attended to vis-a-vis -vis the environment that in the short term are more important than climate change, even if climate change in the long term is more important. But the cost of dealing with climate change 30 years from now or 20 years from now, which is not to say doing nothing, but are just going to be so much lower that better to focus on triaging things that we can actually have an effect on. Where do you come down on all that? Well, I don't think it has to be either or. So right. I think, for instance, limiting non-climate connected air pollution, there's a big net positive from doing that now. And doing more to address climate change, which I don't actually view as a problem that's far off. I think it's a problem that's quite close to us. Uh, that, too, we can do at net positive value. So I would strongly advocate doing both of those two things. So uh, to address maybe the question in its more general form. Sure. If a thousand people are going to die 50 years from now, I don't count those deaths for less. When those deaths arrive, they will be just as painful. Now, if the answer is, well... If we wait, we can avoid those deaths. That's fine. But at some point, we need to invest the money to avoid those deaths. And, you know, that's the moral imperative, not 
limited by the fact that they're distant from us in time. So I, I, this is this is the thing I just keep coming back to in my head is that as a matter of a work of philosophical contemplation, I think, again, I'm, I'm persuaded by much of this. I need to digest more. I need to finish the book. But um, part of my problem is the, the rationalist approach to these things in general. The, you know, the, the distinction I was making earlier about how the, the economic growth is a consequence of getting the institutions and the principles and the values right, um, not the other way around. The principles themselves merge organically from specific cultures, specific doctrines, and it seems to me that teaching people, that, that trying to instruct people about how to live their lives based upon rational doctrine, which is what you're presenting here, no matter how persuasive I may find, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that that works as a political or a cultural program. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm saying? Isn't yes. that a problem? Uh, I think in the long run, it works much better than in the short run. So if you look at, say, the number of people who admit the validity of science, it's certainly not everyone today, but on most issues, it actually really is most people. And if you go back much earlier in human history, while we don't have a definite measurement, uh, there was much less belief in the value of science, much, much less. And I think there are societal shifts in perspective, which are significant. I would stress my rationalism is very much a skeptical rationalism. So we need to start from where we are. Also, we know much more about how to wreck growth than about how to support it. So some of our recommendations are about what we should avoid. And when it comes to boosting growth, we should go with what we think will be best. But the chance that we will be correct is actually fairly low. So there's a kind of underlying skeptical agnostic tone to a lot of the particular recommendations. Like, well, you know, maybe there's a 2% chance this is the best thing to do. And all the other options have only a 1% chance of being right. But, you know, odds are you still probably didn't really exactly get it right. So it's still very much a Hayekian argument, emphasizing the limited knowledge of people when they make choices. But we can't avoid those choices, right? And then we need to do some kind of calculation. Yeah, no, I, I, I do get that. But I'm a kind of fan of Joseph Schumpeter these days and, you know, the argument that he makes in Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy about how one of the problems with affluence is it generates a class of intellectuals who become antagonistic towards the very society that made them rich in the first place. And if you look at the speaking in gross generalizations, you look at the people who are most hostile to the principles and values that brought us in the first place, notions of natural right, notions of limited government, notions of, of laissez-faire economics, those are the people who are, at, are, are the most likely to be benefiting from economic prosperity. And so the more, the richer we get, the more you get a class of people who separate themselves from the, the sort of, the, 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 the more sort of uh, traditional sources of the values that you think are best for organizing society. Living in academia, I do worry about that too. But still, when I look at the data, it seems to me the net effect is in prosperous, well-functioning societies. Loyalty builds rather than bleeds away. So I don't think there's a self undercutting nature of, say, capitalist prosperity, it gets more people attached to the system. You do develop this class of academics and intellectuals, many of whom are parasites. Uh, they're not actually that influential. I guess that's the good news. 
and the number of business people and just ordinary people who support the system more, it seems to me public opinion turns really bad in downturns and recessions and depressions overall. And you saw this in the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I did write a book called Suicide of the West. It's not shocking that I'm maybe not as optimistic as you are. But it seems to me that the ideology or the worldview of the people who have antipathy for liberal democratic capitalism broadly understood extends well beyond academia and the sort of corners of, of intellectual circles. You know, all you have to do is watch the Oscar ceremonies, you know, every year to hear people, you know, peeing from a graded height on traditional values on America, on capitalism. You look at the popularity of socialism among millennials, which I will stipulate they don't really understand what they're saying. Right. They just don't like the status quo. You look at the protests in France right now. I, I guess I'm just seeing less buy-in from people than you are. But that's why I wrote the book. In essence, we need to give this better intellectual foundations, make it more appealing to people, understand why we believe what we do, uh, because it is in some danger. Right. It's not automatic. Right. So speaking of things that aren't automatic, um, one of the things one of those little inconveniences in life uh, that can sort of stop everything on a dime is the need for a stamp when you don't have a stamp. I find in my crazy, increasingly crazy, hectic life that it's those it's those little things that can send me into a bilious, violent rage um, at the least opportune moment. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate Stamps.com so much. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office right to your desktop. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter any package, any class of mail, using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No trips to the post office required. It couldn't be easier. Print postage any day, anytime. Stamps.com is always open. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it saves you money. Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time. Never overpay again. And with Stamps.com, you get discounts on postage you can't even get at the post office. With all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. So, I use Stamps.com because my life is a Heronius Bosch painting of chaos, and anything I can do to limit the amount of friction or inconvenience in my life is a plus. And right now, you can do the same thing. By You can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in DINGO. That's Stamps.com and just enter DINGO. Um, okay, so I, I, you have this – the. To look, this uh, call for co looking for the Crusonia plants? Yes. Can you explain that a little bit, just sort of for the listener? The Crusonia plant is just a funny little analogy I use to talk about systems that build upon themselves and extend themselves and keep on growing. So what I have in mind is an economy that does sustainably grow and then use its growth to grow some more. And that's the one source of value where we can be sure it makes sense 
to invest in those kinds of assets or societies or economies. That's what I mean by the Crusonia plan. What would what would be a sort of good example of of, of what you're talking about there? Uh, in a Western society, a good institutional practice that enforces accountability and spurs innovation. It will pay for itself, and that wealth will in turn, on average, make institutions better, which will in turn lead to more growth and so on. It's a bit like what Paul Romer, who just won the Nobel Prize, did his research on. So you're a bit of a critic of using GDP as the pure model. You use this idea of wealth plus or GDP plus. Can you, can you sort of talk about that a little bit? Well, GDP is a measure of wealth. I actually think it's fine for most purposes. If you look at societies that are growing systematically over time, in all cases, they're making serious progress. But I feel there are some variables that GDP does not measure well. Uh, the most significant one there would be the environment. Uh, also, leisure time, GDP does not capture properly. Uh, but for the, again, for most questions, GDP does fine. For particular questions, you need to modify it. What would you say, the con- to come back to this sort of moral systems problem, because I, I get the feeling a little bit that you are a fan of or, or uh, related to the sort of the, the the William James, John Dewey sort of pragmatic approach, which sort of tries to reduce things down to their purest essences, right? Lou and Anne had that line, called it the, the pragmatist rate, where you cut away the sort of all of the philosophical ceremony and get to the nitty gritty. And I like your version of the nitty gritty, right? I, I like all, I, I like when you clear the, to mix metaphors, when you clear the fat and the sinew, I like the bone that you find, but how what let me put it this way what is your intended audience for this is it fellow academia um, you know member denizens of academia is it the broader audience because i just i i get this there's something in my spider sense tingling about how this is going to seem to a lot of people like homo economicus argument which is really not what you're saying right right it's saying that we value wealth precisely because wealth supports a plurality of values many of which are not economic. They can be human love. They can be community. They can be bonds of caring. Uh, the purpose is to get the reader away from just narrow economics, but also to see that some economic values help that broader array of values. I think I'm much closer to William James than to Dewey. Uh, Dewey I would hope so. He, wrote, he never <laughs> cleared away the mess. Uh, the intended audience for any book I write, it's really myself. It's that I feel I you know, have had something to say and I need to get it out of my system. It's a kind of urgency that doesn't actually make sense. And uh, then you do it. So to process your own thoughts. So uh, to, to write a book with the intent. Well, wonderful thing about a wealthy society that lets, yes, lets exactly. people do precisely that, right? <laughs> just giving the audience what they want, uh, I don't think is a good idea. Yeah. On the other hand, speaking of giving people exactly what they want, sometimes it's a good thing. And one of the things that a lot of people who listen to this podcast want is more intelligent, interesting conversations with intelligent and interesting people. And that's why you should check out Conversations with Bill Crystal. It's on YouTube. It's also a podcast. It's on iTunes. So you can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Bill's conversations include a wide range of really interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests from Dick Cheney and David Axelrod. They've done more than 100, and it's an impressive list. Just to name a few, there's been Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, Jonah Goldberg. That's right, this guy. 
I'm pointing both of my thumbs towards me. You can watch any and all of Bill's conversations on the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org, and subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new releases every other week. So if you like my podcast, and if you don't, why are you listening to this? You'll enjoy Conversations with Bill Crystal. So if you were going to press this book into a policymaker's hand, uh, let's say for the sake of argument, not Donald Trump, but somebody that you could sit down and make a case to, how would you ask them to sort of translate this argument into an actual you know, agenda or, or rhetorical approach? I would say this, media discussions, discussions in government uh, should be overwhelmingly about what we should do to boost economic growth. Uh, and they are not, and they never have been. So the big radical change I want to make is to redirect people's attention. Now, I have many other particular writings as to how best to do that. But this book is not a recipe of particular policy choices. Well, do X, Y, and Z, and your right. growth rate will go up. There is a version of that I would like to argue for. We can talk about that. But that's not the book. The book is really to take classic writers in philosophy like John Rawls, Robert Nozick, Derek Parfit, argue they didn't really justify the arguments they made for better societies and to introduce this idea of economic growth and say it's all about production and the dynamic perspective. And that's how we should think about the philosophical good is by connecting it to the virtues of economic growth. So it's a change in discourse that I want in this book, not a change in conclusions per se. So, um, you know, let's talk about Rawls for a second and you may want to just just completely, you know, dodge this, but no, no, I'm not going to dodge. I give you permission to dodge in a second. When you were talking about discounting future human lives for the, from the present, you know, it just, it conjures to mind to me, one of my main problems with Rawls's veil of ignorance, which I, th I think is an immensely useful thought experiment. You know, Rawls who makes this argument for listeners to know about the veil of ignorance, says, imagine you're basically a soul in limbo and you get to design you want to design a society that would maximize your opportunities, your prosperity, your happiness, but you don't know whether you're going to be born black, white, gay, straight, tall, disabled, rich, poor. And so it's a way of thinking it goes back to sort of uh, some of the writings of Harrington of thinking about how to design a society that maximizes possibilities regardless of external, you know, identifiers of, of race or ethnicity or gender and all those kinds of things. And I think that's a very interesting way of thinking about things. And I think with the, the, the sort of enlightenment-based liberalism gets very close to success about that. Um, but where he kind of falls apart for me is when it comes to the issue of abortion, where all of a sudden, uh, in order to sort of stay loyal to the notions of, you know, abortion politics, he comes out as being pro-choice. I have no, I'm not trying to pick an argument with people who are pro-choice, but it seems to me that if you were in behind the veil of ignorance in this limbo, before you want, before you found out whether you're tall, short, gay, straight, black, or white, the one thing you can be sure you would want is the ability to be born in the first place. Yes. And it seems to me that, that there is a, there is some philosophical sinew connecting your idea of not discounting future lives, generations hence, with not discounting future lives in the here and now on all of this? Where do you come down on all of this? Is this, is this, is this, a, 
Is this a faulty connection between these things that I'm making? I would stress that I'm very much pronatalist. I think it's a good thing if the earth can support many more people. And insofar as governments can take steps uh, which increase birth rates without being coercive, uh, I'm a big fan of those policies. Now on Rawls, I think the main problem is he doesn't understand the benefits of economic growth. At times he says economic growth is itself problematic because it increases inequalities across the generations, that the first generation has to save something at all for there to be any growth. Uh, from my perspective, if you count the distant future highly enough, you'll be a big fan of growth, even though, as we saw in Japan, saw in South Korea, yes, early generations do have to save a lot. They are deprived in some ways. Uh, I think this is the most worthwhile social investment we can find, what those East Asian economies have done. And I say full steam ahead, let's do it. Rawls demurs. So I think economic growth is the perfect example uh, of why Rawls doesn't have all the answers. So you, you said earlier you had this idea about what would be, the, and I know it's not in this book, but you had this idea about, you have ideas about what would be the optimal policies for actually expanding economic growth. What, what would those be? If it's for the United States, I would say deregulate building in our most productive cities to make labor more mobile, get rid of most occupational licensing, further reform the tax system so as to encourage savings and investment, and finance and climate issues aside, I would radically deregulate most of the American economy. I would also have increased high-skill immigration, and I would have our government do more to support science. That would be my quick list. Obviously, there are many, many more issues we could discuss, but I'd start there. Okay, I just wanted to get that on the record. It probably would have, I should have asked it earlier, but now I want to go back to this inequality point that you're making about Rawls. When you say, and, I, and on the merits, I completely agree with you, but you know, one of the arguments I make about capitalism uh, in my book is that of near of almost all of the things that progressives, liberals, secularists, whatever you want to call them, good, that they're good and well-intentioned people, and you ask them, what do they care about? Poli what, are the, what do they want government to do? What do they think politics is for? And I would say somewhere around eight or nine out of 10 of the things that they list in the broad scheme of things, liberal democratic capitalism, economic growth, pluralism, the stuff that comes out of the Enlightenment is actually better at those things, reducing poverty, increasing literacy, improving you know, public health. You can go down a very long list, reducing violence. You know, and the one thing where they're right about their indictment is inequality, yes. not poverty, but inequality, right? I mean, the pro one of the great problems we have, it seems to me, is that we define poverty subjectively rather than objectively. And isn't one of the so isn't one of the real challenges you have to this argument the problem of human nature itself there is something deep within us that really resents income inequality it 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 feels like uh going back to sort of our tribal state that someone is taking more of their share more than their fair share of the mastodon for less work and don't you need a broader philosophical moral worldview to help people deal with that? Or does it make sense to get buy-in for the long-term economic growth of society to do more about in income inequality than you otherwise might? My framework is saying we should not value income equality at all. There may be some ways of redistributing wealth that will boost growth, 
such as getting you know children out of poverty or away from malnutrition and that would be great we we do that we should do that maybe we could do more of it but the mere fact that there's a disparity between incomes uh is not a growth problem per se and that over enough time the society with the higher growth rate will be better for virtually everyone and uh, i'm suggesting income equality simply isn't an independent value now if you ask will people ever agree with that I'm not sure that current American intellectuals would, uh, but actually normal American people, I don't view them as highly envious. I don't think they, you know, resent Bill Gates. They're more worried about like their friends, peers, colleagues, people they went to high school with. So most like actually relevant envy is local rather than directed toward billionaires. So that gives me some hope. I'm not saying local envy is always so great, right. but I don't think your average American is obsessed with income inequality. No, I, I think that's right. And um, but we do live in a society where lots of these sort of schumpeterian new class intellectuals and storytellers tell people to care about it a great, great deal. And um, that's but a problem. Look at actual policy changes. We haven't actually done that much to limit income inequality. Again, whether one agrees or not, uh, what we've done is spend more and more money on old people. Uh, which I would challenge, but actually the American political system is not inequality obsessed. So in that sense, I don't think the intellectuals are the problem. I think elderly voters are a much bigger problem. Oh, I, I agree with that too. I mean, I, I think the, uh, first of all, I hate generational stereotyping. I don't like the phrase the greatest generation because some of the people in that generation were unbelievable heroes who stormed Normandy Beach and other people were in the drunk tank and he shouldn't get uh, you know, uh, there's no transit of property to moral virtue. Um, if some, simply because someone their same age did something great, doesn't mean that you did anything good at all. But that said, the greatest generation has done more to distort our public finances and our, the role of government than, than the damn hippies ever did. Right. Uh, you know, from before the, from the GI bill forward, government has been catering to that generation and laying precedents for catering to old people ever since in part because ever since old people vote wildly disproportionately. So, I mean, I agree with you on that, but at the same time, so where do you come down on something like the universal basic income? I'm against it. People like working, uh, work is what boosts output and it creates revenue and it, uh, gives other people work opportunities. And I think people seek out meaningful work for validation and social connection. And the notion that in some way or another, directly, indirectly, we're going to pay people not to work other than, say, people who are disabled. To me, it's a big mistake. And so where do you come down on which uh, on the Orrin Cass argument about stressing work over producers um, or, or, or sort of leaning heavily on the idea of, of subsidizing work? Do you think that makes sense? I'm a fan of the earned income tax credit, which I think comes fairly close to paying for itself. It's a kind of welfare program, but it pays people to work. Right. Uh, otherwise, it depends on the subsidy one has in mind. I don't think it's easy to design welfare programs which work well. I'm glad we have at least one that does. I would say let's do more of it. I struggle with this because, first of all, you are so shockingly economical in your answers <laughs> that it's, it's, it's a little off-putting. You give... Not since Judge Bork have I ever heard anybody give such concise answers to questions. But uh, so if you had to grade your your long term optimism versus pe pessimism about where where things are heading, either in America or in the West or in the world, 
where would you put it zero to ten, and what would be the main reasons for why you have the answer that you do? Because I don't know if you're an optimist or a pessimist, honestly. I was born in 1962, so I had you know more or less a mature worldview by my late teens, and I looked around at the world and I saw communist China and the Soviet Union and famine in Ethiopia. And the notion that the world today would be doing as well as it is doing was unfathomable to me, that the Iron Curtain would fall, that China would reform, build a middle class, that infant mortality in Africa would so dwindle. So I think one has to be and ought to be an optimist. But that said, there are certainly short run developments that worry me, scare me. I see politics getting worse in many of the best Western nations, including our own. That should be of great concern. Global growth has been robust. The number of countries doing well has never been higher. The number of geniuses who have a chance to create something for the rest of us, that's never been higher. So again, that for me suggests optimism. But of course, if you're not worried, you've been asleep, right? Right. Right. No, that's 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 my whole view is that the the real enemy is going to be complacency and a lack of gratitude for how good things are and could continue to be. I meet a lot of pessimists. You know, I like to ask them this question because it's embarrassing for them. I just say, are you short the market? And they stammer and <laughs> stutter. But, you know, they never are. Maybe they're less long than some other people, but they're not actually that pessimistic. It's like a rhetorical war. They want to lead against particular values, particular groups of people. And so they say they're pessimists, but they're not really. They're like, oh, like, can we buy another house or the money in my checking account isn't yielding enough? I want to put it in some equities. That's like the actual world, right? Let's not kid ourselves. So one one last question. I mean, I'd like to do this longer, but there are just all sorts of mitigating circumstances. I'm a huge fan of Deirdre McCloskey, who, of course, you know, and um, and I'm also was also very heavily influenced by by Douglas North. And the weird thing is, is they do not get along. Or, I mean, I know Douglas North is no longer with us, but philosophically, they do not get along very well. <laughs> and. Um, and Deirdre has very strong views about Douglas Norris, but it seems to me just in the, if you get away from the personalities and you get away from the, the emphases that they place on their explanations about where economic growth come from, it always seemed to me that there, there are two positions, you know, uh, uh, Deirdre's is that rhetoric, ideas, you know, concepts, the way we talk about ourselves helped create this crazy, you know, amazing, econ miraculous economic growth. And North emphasizes the role of institutional pluralism and, and uh, the ability to get elites to agree to the rules of the game, even when they are short-term losers in the process. I just, I'm purely asking this informationally. Are these two things in conflict? Um, no, no, They're both brilliant, were brilliant thinkers in the case of Doug. Doug stressed property rights and economic incentives. Deirdre has stressed classical liberal ideology. They're both right to think the other should stress, you know, the opposing point more, but they're absolutely complementary explanations. And for the rise of the West, it's that both of those things happen together. Uh, and, and there's no fundamental disagreement or clash there. You know, they're both pulling on different parts of the elephant. Right. Okay. I, I'm just glad to hear that because I just don't. I've had I've had conversations with McCloskey, and she's a huge influence on me, and I'm a big fan. But I just I don't get it about this idea that they're not reconcilable positions, because it just seems to me that they're 
in fact, very complementary positions. And I'm, I, I, I can now quote you on this. And as you know from life in Washington, people often squabble the most with those they are relatively close to, right? That is absolutely true. You don't just call up some Trotskyist, Trotskyite at night and start yelling at him. You know, the international, it makes no sense. No, you argue <laughs> with the people who are kind of close to you. Yeah, no, that's that's true. In fact, Trotskyists are kind of fun to talk to because it's, it's like talking to a character from Game of Thrones. It's so otherworldly, it doesn't really bear down on your life. And um, you don't have to argue with them. In a way, there's nothing to argue, right? Right, right. All right. Um, I would love to do this in person sometime. Um, thank sure. you very much for doing this. I, I highly recommend the book. I'll say nice things after the interview's over and we drop in uh, a new conclusion on all this. But thank you for doing this and putting up with me. I appreciate it very much. And see you around, Jonah. Thank right. you. Thank you, Tyler. Bye. Bye. All right. So, uh, uh, I would normally at this point say that Professor Cowan has left the studio, but as you can probably tell, we did not record this with him live in person. Uh, we did it over Skype. There were um, – how did it sound, Jack? Because you were listening, right? And you actually have already edited – we are we are dancing back and forth across the space-time continuum here. As I do. Right, because we recorded this a couple days ago on an insanely hectic day. I was in my basement at home. Um having just gotten back from New Hampshire and uh, thoroughly exhausted and uh, with, with, with dogs and vacuum cleaners going off wildly around me. You didn't hear any of that stuff, right? No. Okay. How did it sound? Because we had audio issues. We had to stop a couple times. It was audible. It was audible. <laughs> it has the, uh, uh, the quality that is most required of podcasts, uh, audibility. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> um, it's 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 necessary but not sufficient. I found right, right. Podcast. Um, um, and uh, you know, I'll just stipulate up front. Tyler, Cow- I I I think I said this in the interview, but you know, huge fan of Tyler Cowens, brilliant guy, one of the most brilliant eggheads around. But man, he is not a um, lover of discursive tangents or embellishment in in rhetoric is he i mean it's a, he makes ramesh panuru seem like an a discursive ornate rhetorician <laughs> yeah at one point uh because of audio issues you asked him to repeat an answer to a question you asked him and i in looking at the audio after the fact found the his answers essentially interchangeable yeah. uh which is that's a hard thing to do <laughs> fyi um, just uh, just casually, but I want to ask you. So you said that uh, Judge Bork was similarly taciturn. Uh, so that must have been kind of intimidating because he's already a large human being, like in stature and in just sheer height. So like all, if you if you asked him a question and he would just give you a what a five word answer. Well, no, I mean like uh, first of all, Judge Bork actually had a fantastic sense of humor, but incredibly dry. I mean like. Uh, on your hands and knees, crawling through the desert, begging for water, dry. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. Dry. But um, uh, I once, you know, when I was a young policy gnome at AI, uh, Judge Bork was here, and um, we would have the brown bag thing. Every Friday was this great thing where a scholar had to give an informal, off the record talk about things. I really wish AI would bring it back, and he gave great ones, right? Where it was just off the cuff. And I remember somebody, there was a lawyer in the room who asked some, it was sort of like that, uh, 
was, I was a lot. Remember that scene in Back to School where the economics professor asks um, Rodney Dangerfield this incredibly complicated question, right? And then Rodney Dangerfield just says four at the end or whatever. <laughs> um, someone asked Bork this unbelievably complicated question about um, originalism uh, in some. 19th century case, whatever, and had multiple parts and, and conditional phrases. And he finishes the question, and Judge Bork just says, No. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, my friend Dan Troy, who is the older brother of Tevi Troy, who I've mentioned on here a few times and is an avid listener of this podcast. Maybe he'll tweet out the quote. Of himself being referenced. Maybe he will. Um, uh, Dan clerked for Judge Bork. And I remember Dan telling me that you could walk into his chambers to brief him on a case or a filing or something like that. Incredibly complicated patent law or intellectual property or takings or whatever it is um, with all sorts of variables about who the plaintiffs were and all this kind of stuff. And Judge Bork would be able to reduce the entire thing down to like two sentences off the cuff. Um, but uh, no, but so anyway, uh, neither here nor there. Um, but Cowan is, uh, it was it was a little frustrating to me because I was just so um, frazzled. And um, normally I'm a good listener in these podcasts, I think. And I usually pick up on something someone says and build on it. And instead, Cowan would just, uh, Professor Cowan, again, who I admire greatly, uh, he would just drop these little um, concise bunkers of answers that you couldn't find purchase to get into to build up on. So I, I, I hope listeners liked it. I mean, I, I find his stuff really interesting, but it was it, between that and the audio issues um, and my lack of sobriety, it was just uh, a. <laughs> um, well, that really you're good. always dealing with that. I did. That's a that's a background. That is true. That is true. Um, I should also say uh, we've gotten a lot of, I must say, shockingly positive feedback about your ad reads of late. Yeah, it's, it's disconcerting to me, but you know what? I just do what I'm asked to do. So, um, And uh, I'm sorry that you didn't read them this week, but you know, um, uh, there, are, there have been requests that this become a permanent feature of the podcast. I'm sure you'd like that. I would love that. <laughs> um, I'm not sure the advertisers necessarily – I don't know if the advertisers would be happy with it or not. They might be. If people – Look, I mean, anything you can do in podcasts where it's so easy to fast forward through stuff, if you can get people to um, actually want to listen to the ads, um, then we should do it. I, I got no problem with that. Uh, um, Drew Klein, this guy um, who runs the Josiah Bartlett Center, which I spoke to on, was that Monday night? Yes. Yeah, in New Hampshire. Great crowd, great people. He was saying how you should have, and I kind of like this idea, that Sort of like the, the, the tease for the next Marvel movie that comes after the credits. Yeah, a post-credits scene. Yeah. There should be like 30 seconds of silence and then you rant for like a minute about something odd, forcing people to like to see, to stick around. Sort of like the uh, the weird screen grab at the end of uh, those what, Chuck Lorre, whatever that guy's name is, who makes Big Bang Theory. He's got those little rants that are on a card um, that he puts up for a fraction of a second. And you have to pause your DVR to read them. Um, or to make uh, Charlie Cook happy, um, the track Her Majesty on Abbey Road, the first hidden track in in rock history. There you go. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm open to all of these ideas. Again, I want this podcast to be weirder than it is. So um, that's it's going to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I bet you listeners would be down for it. So we'll see. Uh, I should also report I have not given up hope, but Rob Long and I did a night owl thing on the NR cruise where it was all sort of like, you know, lighthearted, sticky um, banter and badinage. And I cannot find the recording doohickey that has the conversation on it. And this is troublesome for a number of reasons. One, it's just driving me crazy because I don't know how I could conceivably have lost it. I, I kind of feel like it was stolen from my bag by TSA or something. Uh, two, all those uh, rabid remnant listeners in the TSA. Exactly. Well, it does. It, if I saw it on X-ray, I might think it was a bomb. You know, it does look weird. So why would they just take it and not tell you and not arrest you? Yeah. No. Well, then maybe they got embarrassed. I, I don't know. It just it's just really weird. <laughs> One of the socially awkward. Uh, you know, a, t- a typical awkward. Oh, sorry about the mistaken your item for a bomb. Happens to me all the time. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean, this is sort of like you know. I told you, my dad always told me that you should always bring a bomb on flights because the odds of one bomb being on a flight are really high, but uh, the odds of two bombs being on the plane are just astronomical. So, yeah. Uh, uh, that's like the scene in uh, World According to Garp, the movie, which was not in the book, but fits the spirit of the book when uh, Garp is looking at houses and while he's looking at a house to buy, a plane crashes into it. Right. And the real estate agent is like, sorry, I'll get you a new house. And he's like, no. This is it. It's the house. <laughs> what are the odds something like this is going to happen again? Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but also I'm, I'm, I'm vexed because, as we often say on the Glop podcast, it was gold. <laughs> it was a lot of fun and it was a good conversation. And I think listeners would like it and it would be a bonus track for people. Um, if, uh, if a podcast isn't uh, – if the audio never appears, did it even happen? Exactly. The podcast falls in the forest. <laughs> um, and lastly, because I'm going to have to reimburse AI for this doohickey, which I don't want to do. So um, – um, I'm hoping to find it. I'm going to call Holland America and see if it's in there lost and found somehow. Maybe I left it on the boat. I don't know how I would have done that. Um, well, you would have forgotten it on the boat. That's how. Yeah. It just, it would be, if you're just um, pure, pure logistics, that's how it would have happened. That's, that's, that's true. That's true. It's, it's uh, axiomatically true. Yeah. That's, when, I was, uh, when I was in grade school, I, I lost – someone stole something from me and my, my sister asked me how that happened and I, I was – I, I couldn't figure it out, and then I had a realization. It, it must have happened when I wasn't looking. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, yes, but that doesn't explain everything. It's sort of like that incredibly annoying phrase that parents always throw at you, which is you always find it in the last place you look. Well, yeah, because you stop looking. Yeah, if you find it at all. <laughs> well, but if you find something, of course you're going to find it in the last place you look because you stop looking for it once you find it. Just to, just to defy that, next time I'm looking for something and then I find it, I'm not going to... I'm going to look in one more place just uh-huh. to make sure that I don't have two. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe there's some sort of uh, fold in space and there's a doppelganger copy of your car keys or something. Yeah. Um, I don't think we need to do – so what, what did you think of, um, of, of Tyler's argument? Uh, I think he's – so with, with this book, I think he's trying to – it's kind of interesting because as far as I know, this, this isn't in his bibliography yet, but he's trying to sort of – write a a first principles abstract outline of where he comes from. He sort of started, at least in my familiarity with his oeuvre, as you say, uh-huh. is that he uh, he went straight into applying his principles into questions of public policy. 
So now it's almost like he's taking a step backward and saying, this is where I come from, which I guess makes sense because he said he's been writing the book for almost my entire lifetime. So it's like probably he started out thinking or writing it and trying to sketch out what his beliefs were, and now he's publishing it when his beliefs are well-known on questions of policy, but not perhaps not as well in abstract principles. Yeah, so I... I um. And I was trying to get at this, in, um, but he wasn't taking the bait. Um, I like it. I probably agree with the vast majority of it. But remember how, you know, the working title of the book for a long time was of my book was The Tribe of Liberty, right? Mm-hmm. There is a problem with stripping all of the sort of the, the cultural normative ornamentation from ideas and stripping them down to their, their purest essence – this is what I was getting at with the pragmatist razor thing. Mm-hmm. There are many things that we do because of the rituals attached to them, rather than the the core idea, right? I mean, the you know the 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 good enlightenment, right? The the free market stuff comes out of cultural traditions, habits of the heart, weird customs that had within them these ideas that the libertarian recognizes. And I'm not at all convinced that you can strip the ideas away from the rituals that encase them and keep people attached to the the core principle. Um, yeah, that's that's always been the complaint about libertarians is that you need – I mean you could probably have a pretty successful libertarian commune of a bunch of other libertarians. Right. But I mean until then, it's going to be hard to run a society in a libertarian – way with if everyone else isn't also a libertarian which i understand that's what libertarians want in the long run is to make everyone one of them but yeah but i mean it's sort of like the you know and uh, people know that i'm not a huge fan of nationalism but there's a there's a long standing oh, really there's a long standing libertarian trend uh, of, of thought and argument opposed to all forms of nationalism i remember will wilkinson who i like a lot and i have uh, and i think he's a brilliant guy but you know I had a corner post, this is probably 10 years ago, about how I love Thanksgiving. It's, you know, and I, you've heard me talk about this before, about how Thanksgiving is our most nationalistic holiday. But it's it's nationalistic in the right proportion. It's just a little bit nationalistic, right? It's It predates – it celebrates something that predates and is prior to the founding, prior to democracy or American creed or the, the declaration and all that kind of stuff. It's about giving thanks to God for, for, for family and for, for the soil and for our place. And I had just this sort of little love letter to, to Thanksgiving and, and, and its nationalistic aspect to it. And I, I don't want to falsely accuse Will, but I'm pretty sure it was him. Somebody at Cato at the time did this thing about here's what a little nationalism gets you and showed pictures of uh, coffins coming back from Andrews Air Force Base, um, which I just thought, you know, wow, that that escalated quickly. <laughs> you know? And um, – but it gets sort of to the Chestertonian point. You know, Chesterton says somewhere, we're talking about dogma, that you know, the purely rational soldier will not fight. The purely rational man will not marry. And if you strip away the, the philosophical or emotional or custom, customary ornamentation to some ideas, you expose those ideas. You know, it's sort of like taking the insulation around a wire. You expose – the core idea to the elements, and that makes it much more vulnerable. And you know, if if you look around the country, the in state legislatures for the last twenty years, the most sort of free market legislators 
were also the most pro-life, right? These, there's some of these ideas that come in a, um, in a bundle to us as part of our dogma, as part of our sort of our philosophical kit bag. And I understand the impulse to reduce, the, reduce ideas down to their core elements, but those core elements aren't nearly as persuasive. Uh, libertarians were anti-communists, but the, the guys who actually, you know, were the frontline troops of the Cold War weren't doing it for libertarian principles. They were doing it for their love of country. And um, I just, anyway, I, that's what I was trying to get at, and I just kind of felt like I was unarmed um, to sort of explore the point more. Next time you take on one of these GMU libertarians, you need to get ready. Because it was uh, the last time you were this vexed by a podcast was probably the Brian Kaplan episode. I think that's right. That's right. Although I was vexed by... Um, oh, yeah, Hazoni. By Yoram Hazoni as well. Because um, I thought... But he... Uh, he was just, I thought, slippery. Um, I don't think Brian Kaplan was slippery. And I don't think... Um, slippery is the right word for... for Tyler Callen either. Um, anyway, uh, it has been. I sorry if I sound exhausted and frazzled. It's only because I am. I've. I am now done with business travel for a while. Um, I even came home early rather than go to the National Review holiday party in New York, in part to deal with some really pressing stuff, but in part just because I. I just want to go home. I'm so tired. Um, we um, probably should. Stack up some podcasts next week um, before the Christmas break. Right. Um, so we're going to try and do that, and maybe we'll even squeeze in a, a rank punditry one or two in the near future. How goes your Young America's podcast? Well, a, a new episode just went up yesterday, and I have already recorded the last episode of the year. So we're we're chugging along. Yeah. How's it doing with listeners? I mean, is it like is it it's just it's is it just exploding? Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that it is still something of a niche podcast. Uh, I know you've bandied that term about mostly as an insult, but I... Look, if you can find a niche, that's a good way for podcasts to survive we are, in um, some way. We are all in one niche or another in, right. in this life. Anything else that we need to discuss? Your alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, no, there's that. Um, but again, background issue always there. Yeah, no, I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve it right now. It's a constant. So it's, it's funny you, you mentioned my alcoholism. It's not really alcoholism. It's, <laughs> no, no, I. Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, it, it's 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 the beginning of a problem. <laughs> but no, uh, a beginning is a very delicate time. Uh, so I was I did this thing. That was a Dune reference for anyone. Oh, that's right, it was actually. Yeah. Um, I did this thing for the Sheen Center for Catherine Lopez with Catherine Lopez. Last night, today is Thursday, and um, and they put me up in the best western in the Bowery. Was that your idea? Or yeah, I put, I did that. Oh, that was your, that was your call. Yeah, or um, they they suggested it. Yeah, I mean, it and, was, or they, they gave me three suggestions, and that was the one that seemed seemed good to me. But yeah, I I don't know New York very well. I've only been there once in my life. Well, the thing is, if you had told me, I said this on Twitter. If you'd told me twenty five years ago that you know at my age I was going to end up drinking alone. In a hotel on the Bowery, I would have thought it was possible, <laughs> but the idea that it would be a four hundred dollar a night. <laughs> hotel well, what the was Bowery. the Bowery like in uh, nineteen ninety three? Then the year of my birth. Well, the Bowery's still for Manhattan. It's a, it you know it's among the most still one of the most uh, 
marginal neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, I mean, historically, it was the Bowery. I mean, it's like was America, it was New York Skid Row. Okay. And, I, um, I see, that's what I'm asking for you to explain because I have no idea. Yeah, so the Bowery was one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City where all the te- a lot of the tenements were. It, you know, it abuts things like Alphabet City, which is still one of the more sketchy, last fun, sketchy neighborhoods <laughs> in New York. And that's one of the things I actually turned out I loved walking around. Um, I walked through Little Italy, such as it is. Little, Little Italy, when I was a kid, was actually an, an Italian neighborhood. Now it's basically an, um, sort of an Epcot Center uh, strip of Italian restaurants for tourists to go to. So Little Little Italy is the uh, is where the, the parade in Godfather Part Two takes place, after which Robert De Niro's character shoots the, yes, the mob boss. Okay. That's right. But it's nothing like that now. Very little like that now. I think most of the Italians who work there probably commute from Jersey. Oh. Um, or maybe the Bronx. I don't know. But, I mean, there's still a real Little Italy um, – um, what is it? Not um, – out by Fordham, Arthur Avenue, which is, like, still, like, a cool Italian neighborhood. But that's trans- transitioning, too. Meanwhile, Chinatown is just sort of swamping Little Italy um, and has been for years. But – the thing I like, you know, I, I did a lot of walking last night around the neighborhood after the Sheen thing, and um, it's the first time I've walked around New York in a while where it felt like the New York I remember. There were still a lot of quirky, weird stores and and quirky, weird people, and so I really enjoyed it. But like uh, that hotel was weird. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, did it have a bed? It had a bed. <laughs> okay. And um, uh, and it had um, um, I just who chooses to stay at the Best Western in the Bowery? I just don't quite get. I mean, I had a reason because it was close to the venue where I was. Uh-huh. It's just like, it, it, I, it's it's just hard for me to get my head around about why someone would choose to, st- given that its price was not. It wasn't like some huge bargain. It just it was just very strange to me. I'm not communicating well. This but. is kind of how I feel when on those those rare occasions where I'm out driving on a highway at like two or three a.m. and I every once in a while I'll see another car. I think, what are you? What I know why I'm out here, but yeah. why are you out here? Yeah, what no, brings you into this bizarre situation? I, I have a fixation with that kind of stuff. I used to rant about it all the time. It was like. I would be in some neighborhood walking around. I was like, what excuse could you people possibly have for being here right now? Um, um, but now you're talking about the Bowery, and I've mentioned this before. Every time you get nostalgic about New York, the New York of your childhood, you remind me of these like writers for the nation who who just admired the artistic authenticity of graffiti-strewn subway cars and and loved the, uh, the assortment of crack whores in uh, Times Square. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not nostalgic for that. Um, <laughs> I and I've written about this. I mean, I, I think the golden age in my lifetime of New York City was right around the time I left, which was. Hmm. Um, so there's that's that seems like a psychological phenomenon. No, no, no. It was like Giuliani was doing these amazing things to New York, and so once you got rid of the crime, which Giuliani did a great job of doing, um, it allowed you to appreciate the other cool stuff, you know, and the problem now is, so I don't, I don't, I don't miss the tranny hookers in the Times Square subway station. I don't miss all the porn theaters. You know, I remember when I was, my brother and I were walking through Times Square when I was a kid and if it not for my brother, you know, this guy 
was offering us money to get in a van. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there was some creepy, sketchy stuff going on back then. And all your muggings. And all the muggings, you know, and all of that. And um, and I don't miss the murders. Um, I mean, the murders of other people, not the ones I committed. And um, Right, right. Um, yeah, you can't go without those. Um, but, you know... <sighs> New York City doesn't need a bunch of Forever 21 shops, you know, and and it is becoming – it turns out that when – we talked about this a little bit with the homelessness episode. Um, when you get rid of the crime, you hasten gentrification, and I'm generally in favor of gentrification, but the sort of homogenization and, and sort of corporate chain stores that have moved into New York are, to me are just removing some of the charm. And one of the things I liked walking around Alphabet City last night, you know, I mean, other than the fact that it was really easy to cop fentanyl, was that um, there were still just a bunch of cool dive bars and weird places. And I am kind of curious how in Chinatown all of these foot massage places stay in business. You would just sort of think that the market can only bear so much of that. But that's a mystery to be solved later. <laughs> um, it may not only be feet they're massaging. I, I thought about that. I just hope they wash their hands before they move on to other things. Yes. Um, like ankles. Yes, exactly. Nothing like a good ankle massage. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, the Sheen Center thing went great. It was a sold-out uh, room. I will say, in all modesty, it was a small sold-out room. <laughs> um, and uh, Jonah Goldberg and Puppet Show. The Josiah Bartlett thing was a lot of fun. Great crowd. Uh, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a Sununu. Uh, uh, Governor Sununu was there. The former White House Chief of Staff Sununu was there. Um, some of the other Sununu siblings were there. Um, the governor, um, Sununu, uh, it's weird. He looks a lot like NR's John Miller. Uh, oh. Or I guess now Hillsdale's John Miller. Both. He's both. Yeah. And, uh, um. Does he sound like him too? No, but he's got some of the same facial expressions. It was really disconcerting. <laughs> um. That voice shouldn't be coming out of that body. And, uh. So that's about it. Uh, lots of stuff going on in my life we can talk about another time. Um, curious to see how uh, some of it shakes out, but I'll just be cryptic about that for right now. And um, Let let uh, let str- future Straussians try to interpret this podcast. Yeah. Or the silences and the, and the, and what is left implicit. Um, um, yeah, but yeah, that's a good idea. So... Anyway, I want to say thanks. I haven't begged you guys to um, spread the word about this podcast. We were cited um, by Town Hall as one of the 20 podcasts that... Keep you sane from left-wing America. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for praise from anybody and all praise and honor and thanks to, to Town Hall. But, you know, uh, I get... I talk to a lot of... I hear from a lot of liberals who listen to the podcast. And... Um, uh, I don't think we do an enormous amount of left bashing on on this podcast. I mean, the the stuff we hear the most criticism for is Trump bashing, not left bashing. And I don't think we do as much as people think we do. I think just the people who are annoyed by that have so little tolerance for it that even a little goes a long way. But um, yeah, you're you're more of a lib leaser, not a lib owner. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want this to be as ecumenical as possible without me selling my soul or or, or um, pulling a Jen Rubin. Um, so with that, thank you for the reviews. We're coming up on 3,000. Uh, please spread the word. Check out jonahgoldberg.com. Uh, we've done plugging the book, so that's done with. Um, 
Anything else that we need to announce? Uh, I can't think of anything. Okay. So um, until next time when I have my senses, uh, maybe we'll have someone in the studio. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No one is Bacchus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.